welcome to the Keep Running podcast with me, Rachel Stringer. And me, Amana Rai. If you're listening to us now, then you're probably a runner, thinking about becoming a runner, or you just want to hear some inspiring stories. Each week on our podcast, we will be sharing our own running experiences and chatting to some amazing and inspiring running people. And hopefully this all gives you an extra little bounce in your step for your next run. Today's guest really is one of a kind. She's one of those people who has such an infectious personality that just being around her brightens up your day. She's a self-proclaimed adventurer, speaker and mischief maker. She's been on more adventures than most people will manage in their lifetime and already has three successful books to her name. But it all didn't just fall into her lap. She had to take a massive step into the unknown to achieve all that she has. I met our guest a few years back when I was hosting a women's cricket day for Middlesex Cricket. And this lady was invited along as the guest speaker. Needless to say, as soon as she started talking, she had everyone in the room under her spell. Our guest today is Anna McNuff, and we can't wait to talk to her about her recent barefoot run across the UK, how she made the leap from day job to full-time adventurer, her positive outlook on life, and we also can't wait to hear about her new book, A Hundred Adventures to Have Before You Grow Up. Welcome, Anna. Hello, thank you for having me. What a pleasure. Pleasure having you. So how have you been? Uh, I'm good. I'm coping and I'm actually loving finding new little running routes just from my house. I'm basically trying to fill in all the gaps on the map. It's brilliant. So continuously going on adventures then, yeah? Trying to. Yeah, absolutely. I actually think it's forcing me to be even more adventurous because I'm off autopilot, which you normally do on your usual run, and I'm in explore mode, which is great. It's like a different gear in your brain. So Anna, we always start our podcast by asking our guest five quick questions, okay? Why do you run? I run because it makes me feel free and I just feel like a kid that's going down to the sweet shop. That is how it makes me feel when I run. I love that. So um, what's your greatest running achievement? Definitely the most recent mad run I did, which was to run 2,352 miles from the Shetland Islands to London with no shoes on. Crazy. We'll chat to you a lot about that in a little bit. Question three, best piece of advice you've ever been given during your running adventure career? Shut Oh, that is a good, that is a good question. But I would say the best piece of advice is to just enjoy it. Because I think sometimes we forget. And if you're the kind of person that's ambitious, which I'm sure most of your listeners are, we pile so much pressure on ourselves, even on training runs. And so sometimes I think it pays just to go out there and think, I'm just going to enjoy myself. And then the whole run just gets much better. It's so important to enjoy what you're doing, I think. So who inspires you the most? Oh, I am super inspired by people who go massively against the grain. So society says you shouldn't be doing that, whether you're an older woman trying to swim across an ocean or I watched this 86-year-old gymnast on the telly one morning and everything in the grain of society says you shouldn't be doing that. And yet there they are doing it, flying the flag of defiance in the face of it and just saying, watch me. I just love that. So a bit like yourself then, really. <laughs> no, you're right. I look at other people doing it though. And I think, God, they must, they must just have this real strength and resolve. And then if you try and do something different yourself, I, I think they can't possibly go through all the anxiety and the worry that I have to cope with, but everyone must do that too. 
And the fifth and final question. Uh, do you have a quote which never fails to brighten up your day? Oh, yes. Do you know what? My favourite quote was actually, it was given on a, a card that was given to me when I was seven years old by one of my mum's friends. And it's just this, there's a drawing of a little girl with some like wings on her back and she's got, a, she's got a sparkly wand. And the quote underneath it says, it only takes one bright spark to set the world alight. And I love that quote because I just think that we are all bright sparks in our various different ways. Doesn't mean you have to be loud and gobby. But um, I just think that everyone is a bright spark and you've got the ability to set the world alight. Nice. Love those. Thank you very much. Anna, like we said in our intro, you're one of these people that has such a positive energy and such a positive outlook on life, which we can see translates into your running and your various adventures. But where did this all stem from? Oh, that is a good question, isn't it? Because I think sometimes you do just take for granted that you are the way you are. And I think it takes you a while and probably certain in, certainly for me into my late 20s, 30s to realise that, you know, my brain does operate in different ways to other people's. But I have to accredit a lot of my positivity to my mum, I would say. Uh, my dad's amazing as well, but my mum is the kind of woman that she can change a car engine, she can tile a bathroom, she does all the DIY in the house. My dad can't hang a mirror straight. And, um, and so I guess I just grew up with watching my mum teach herself things and give it a go. And so I learned in watching that, that, yeah, you might mess it up, you might get it wrong, you might make mistakes, but actually, if you just give it a crack, then you'll get there sooner or later and you're capable of teaching yourself anything and learning and growing. So I think I get that from my mum and she, her default is she's a very positive person. You know, she, she'll have a low, but then she'll say, right, okay, let's look for the positives in this. And what's, what, how can we move forward? She's a, she's a woman of action, sometimes too much action when I want to just chill. But um, yeah, so I think that's where I got it from. So it's obviously been ingrained in me from quite a young age, but I don't think I realized that until I was a bit older. Yeah, for sure. And I guess your adventures, you've not always been an adventurer. You kind of started off, well, actually, tell us where you started off because your parents were quite sporty and you kind of followed in their sporty footsteps, but that's not now what you're doing. So kind of tell us where the sportiness kind of came from. No, and that's it's a really good point, actually. But And it's a story I like to share, especially if I'm giving a talk, because um, I, my, so my parents are both Olympians. I'm the Casual. spawn of Olympians. <laughs> cash as you do which again took me a while to realize that is not normal <laughs> and uh, there's just an olympic bronze medal my dad's got a bronze medal just hanging on our living room wall and um so i grew up and in my my youngster brain it was just a case of oh well you work hard you pick a sport you train as, as hard as you can you try 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 and then you go to the olympics that is the way the world works like end of of course that's not the way the world works and um, so I, I, I think I did, I, they were rowers, but I resisted taking up rowing until I was 16 because I absolutely hated rowing because all I ever heard was rowing, rowing, rowing in my household. And so I hated it. But then at 16, I tried it and, um, and, it was, and I absolutely loved it then, got, got well into it, trained really hard. And I was in the Great Britain squad for about four years trying to get to the Beijing Olympics and the selection came around and I didn't make the cut. And oh, it was like a sucker punch. I just thought, how have I, you know, I've put so much energy. I've wanted to be an Olympian since I was a little kid and it's not going to happen now. And can I hang on for another four years? And basically at that point, it took me a few months afterwards, nearly half a year of trying to carry on. But I realized that actually 
the elite sport pathway for, wasn't quite for me and that I had this other sort of wanderlust and I had a love of just the outdoors in general and that going backwards down the two kilometer rowing course, <laughs> trying to go as fast as I can, wasn't actually me. And, um, and I enjoyed writing and taking pictures and you can't really do that when you're in the middle of a rowing race. So um, I, um, that's when I just started shifting towards doing more adventurous stuff. But yeah, it wasn't until I was 28 that I actually started going on my first big adventures. So it took me quite a while to actually find myself in this sort of endurance adventure space. Hang on, but hold on though, because you missed a chunk there. You did actually have a, a normal, yeah. I say it inverted commas, boring as well <laughs> job in marketing in a city. I did. And, you know, you, you, you got that. So like, I guess where was the turning point for you to grow a pair and say, I don't want to do marketing. I want to do my dream and be me. Yeah. So I, I think looking back, I'm, I, I almost wished I'd taken the leap sooner, but at the same time, you don't know what you don't know. And I think we're all on our own journeys through life and you've got to just follow like your curiosity. So I've always been someone that if something interests me, I sort of turn my head towards it and I go, oh, what's going on over there? And I follow it. And then sometimes it ends in a dead end and sometimes I take a U-turn. But I think in, in following where you are at that point in your life, it does eventually lead you to the place you're supposed to be. Um, but I mean, I'd given up my rowing career, obviously had no work experience because I'd spent my whole life doing sport. And um, so I started in a PR company in Soho. I sat, I was a receptionist. I sat behind a curved pink bubble. I used to pick up the, um, used to pick up the phone and just greet people and buy really cool biscuits for the meetings with chocolate chips in and eat all the biscuits. Um, and then, yeah, then I ended up on a graduate market, marketing scheme for a really big um, TV company. And it was just, I, the reason I stayed there for six years and the reason I did that is because A, the people were pretty awesome and B, I was on a graduate scheme, so I was changing roles every six months and I was, felt like I was learning and growing. And it was after those six years, I just started to feel a little bit suffocated and uh, there were all these rules um, about, you know, when you couldn't, could and couldn't progress according to HR. And, um, and I was also repeatedly being told in my personal development reviews that I should consider being more serious in the office. And um, I'd say to my boss, I'd say, um, am, I not doing, am I not doing my job then? They said, no, no, you're doing your job, but I just think you should be a bit more serious. And I said, but I'm doing my job. Like, why can't we have fun and do our job? And, and, I, and so there was just this jarring between who I felt I was out of the office and who I was being forced to be in the office. Um, and I also looked around and people around me loved their jobs. I mean, they absolutely loved it. <laughs> and they were taking their work home, doing their weekends. And I was like, laptop down, out in the sunshine. Woohoo! Um, and so I thought, ha. Huh, there's something wrong here. People around me love what they do and I don't. And that's not to say that our, what I was doing was a, was, a, was a bad thing. It's just that it wasn't right for me. So um, I think it was a day I'd actually spent an hour trying to line up PowerPoint presentation boxes and I wanted to throw my laptop out the window. And I just thought, I don't think I should be here. And actually it was a realization that I had a choice and I was a fully grown adult and no one was making me be in that room at that point. And if I wanted to go on a huge adventure and leave and change my life in some way, then I had the power to do that. It was just a case of sacrifice and how long it was going to take. And that was the start. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but Anna, so I think a lot of people will probably 
find themselves in a very similar situation in that they're going to work, working perhaps a nine to five job, but they don't quite take the step that you took and decide, actually, I'm going to go against what is considered in, in inverted comments, the norm. So that day that you decided to go off on a crazy adventure, what thought process actually went through your mind? What factors did you consider? That's a, such a good question because, um, and I always talk about this, this there's, there's three people that live in your mind, right? You've got the dreamer, you've got the realist, and you've got the critic. And our realist and our critic, they're always chatting away, but we never let our little dreamer out. And so that day, I just, I, I remember very clearly what I did. I left the office very quietly and I went home and I laid out a world map on my floor and I looked at it and I like circled around the map and I just looked at it and said, I am going to go somewhere. Um, I don't know. I don't know how yet. I don't know when, but I am going somewhere because I want to at some point. And then the next day I wrote down a list of all the reasons why I shouldn't go. And they were things like um, I had a great job by, by all intents and purposes. Everyone said I had a great job. Um, I had a mortgage. Um, I, you know, what, what would this mean for my future career? And, all, and I had no money. I was terrible at saving, still am, dreadful. And so I wrote down all the reasons why I couldn't go. And then next to it, I wrote down all the things that I could do, you know, even if they were crazy things, like I could sell my house or, you know, I could, um, I could rent out my room or I could just leave my job. I wrote down all the things I could do to overcome them. Um, and it was really weird doing that because suddenly I actually saw those lists. They were a list of choices that I was making, you know, I could sell my house, but I didn't want to because of X, Y, Z. I, I could just leave my job and screw it, but actually I needed money to live. Um, I could save, but I'm terrible at it. So um, then what I saw was a list of choices. And I basically just thought, can I make enough of those sacrifices in order to get me on that plane and get me gone? And it took me a year to um, save up the money. I took a second job in a bike shop at weekends. So for nine months, I worked Monday to Friday in my marketing job. And then I worked Saturday and Sunday on a shop floor selling bikes and knew nothing about bikes, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, and that meant I didn't go out. I didn't spend any money. Um, I put on loads of weight because I ate croissants and only had like tiny amounts of sleep. Um, and, but, and then I rented out my room in my, in my house um, to pay the mortgage. So it was all things that lots of people probably, they might not be comfortable doing, but I felt like at that point in my life, I was able to do those things and, um, and it was a challenge and it worked and it got me on a plane on my first adventure. So I guess, what advice would you give to people who might find themselves in similar positions right now and just like, in a couple of sentences, think, just say, what, what would you say to them? Yeah. I think write down all those reasons write down what you want to do, write down all the reasons you can't do it. And then look at those reasons and see if you can recognize which one of those are choices and optional and be brutally honest with yourself and which ones are non-negotiable. And it might be that some of them are non-negotiable. You know, if you've got family, if you've got responsibility or whatever, but in doing that and putting it down in black and white, you'll probably find that there's more choice and more flexibility than you actually realize. And one of those obviously adventure adventures, was your run across New Zealand, not just one island, both the islands, north and south, quite a long way. Yeah. You wrote a book about that as well. <laughs> I listened to the audio book. Great book. Oh, uh, I know, pants of perspective. <laughs> but I guess, you know, like trying to relate it to running, we go out for two hour runs on a Sunday. You went out and ran across both islands. How on earth 
did you keep yourself motivated when you did it on your own as well? Yeah, that's a good question. Because I mean, I look at runners like you two and I think, oh my goodness, how do you go so fast? So the first thing I'll say is I've definitely picked a style of running that suits my natural ability, which is slow and steady. I can keep going like a steam train but you try and get me to change speed and there is nothing there. I just got one gear. Um, but I do ha- seem to have this endurance ability to keep going and and more be able to keep going day after day after day. So I think once I got my head around the fact that I, I was trying to run this 2,000-mile trail in New Zealand and the thought of running a 2,000-mile trail, I mean, bearing in mind I'd run the most uh, marathon or so before, I thought, how on earth am I going to do that? And then it actually just dawned on me all I needed to do was get up every day and run as far as I could and then sleep and then do the same thing the next day. And then at the end of five and a half months, that might mean that I could have run the length of the country. But it, so it wasn't really like looking at it as a huge run. It was just looking at I have to go running every day and um, I've got the whole all the daylight hours to do it. And I'll just start, see how I go. And I had no idea if I was going to explode halfway through it or I was going to get injured or anything else. But I thought, why don't I just start and put some faith in my body and hope that my body will get used to it and adapt and see how we go. So that's what I did. So you obviously made it to the other end, which is great. Amazing. But there were challenging times along the way. Obviously, you were doing it solo. But how did you keep yourself motivated for those five and a half months? Yeah, I mean, I had um, I had little, um, Rachel, you'll remember this if you've listened to the book, I had little mind games that I'd play with myself. Um, my first one, beautiful denial. Denial is the best tool in your armory, as, as I'm sure you'll know when you're running um, a longer race. I just would break things down because say I'd have to run, you know, 25 miles in a day, I would think, God, the thought of doing that, it just makes me want to explode. So I would, I would pretend that I was only running 10K. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd think, what a lovely day to run 10K. And then I'd run 10K and then I'd sort of just like shake my head and imagine I was back at the start again and then go, what a lovely day to run 10K. And I'd do that four times in a day and then I was at the end. Um, so yeah, denial was definitely a good one. And I remember when I finished, that was the weirdest thing that I could actually let my thoughts in my brain go free and I didn't have to chunk down my days and control my thoughts so much. So that was my favorite one. And the other really important thing is that I created, um, cheerleaders that lived in my head <laughs> and we've all got them. Yeah. You're all laughing, but we've all got them. Um, cause I actually realized that while I was running, there was this horrible voice in my head. And I recognized it from my rowing days when I'd row down a a race course and I'd be in GB colors. And the voice in my head would just be telling me it wasn't good enough. And um, nasty, nasty voices. I think we've all got them self-critical. And I decided after about three weeks of the run of me constantly telling myself that I wasn't going fast enough. I mean, I'm trying to lug up mountains in New Zealand with a 14 kilo backpack on my back. You know, it was just like, I was beating myself up so much. And so I decided one day that um, I would create these two characters. One was the soldiers of self-doubt. They were the negative voices. And then I had these cheerleaders who would say things like, good job, Anna, well done. They're really loud. They got pom-poms. They're like, yeah. So every time a negative voice would start, the cheerleaders would, would come out. They would kick the soldiers in the nuts. And suddenly, when I focused on those positive voices, everything just got a lot easier. Not easy, but easier. I'm just kind of creating a picture in my head, and I've obviously listened to your book. 
New Zealand to me would be one of the most beautiful places to run. Is the trail that you completed achievable for a regular runner? Like how much training would you need to do if Amara and I were to go, you know what, we want to go and run the two islands in New Zealand. Is that feasible? Can people just go and do that? Yeah, so I honestly believe you could. It would be about um, whether you're used to the terrain. So one of the biggest things in New Zealand that was a shocker to me as a woman that's grown up in southwest London was, you know, you do things like just scramble up the side of mountains and run along riverbeds and cross rivers and all that stuff that I was unused to. So, And that really does slow you down. So there were days when I thought all I want to do is blimmin run. And I thought the trail was going to be like the South Downs way, and it wasn't. Um, so um, I think it's about what your experience is in the backcountry and moving over. It's almost like fell running style terrain. Um, and then I guess it's about, um, yeah, just how much time you have. Because even if you're unfit and you're not a runner, if you get, you could give yourself, you know, a year if you wanted to, you give yourself six months. Some people do the trail in four months walking, and that's faster than me when I ran it. Um, but I honestly do think if you started and you just let your body get up to speed, and I always find on these longer adventures, it takes about six weeks of just getting up, running every day, every day, and then your body fun finally goes, oh, I get it. This is what you want me to do. And your body's this amazing machine that is built to adapt and it will take over. Um, and so I definitely think anyone could go and do the trail. It's just about how badly you want to do it and whether you can find the time and make the time. And I might consider doing, if I did it again, I, I wouldn't run with a huge backpack on my back because that wasn't great. But, you know, these are, these are wonderful choices we make at the time. So you achieved New Zealand, which was huge. And then you weren't done there. You decided to run even further across the UK, but barefoot. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, 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 I always laugh when I hear people say it because I just think, God, who is this mad woman? She sounds off her rocker. And I'm, then I remember it's me. I called it Barefoot Britain and the run came from I'd just been made the, the UK ambassador for girl guiding. I was all about trying to get girls outdoors. And so I thought, right, I want to do a new run. I want to do it in Britain and I want to talk to young, young girls along the way. And I just thought, what, what message do I have to give them? And what have I learned through all these adventures? You know, what mindset things have I learned? And the biggest thing I'd learn is that when you, when you take on a challenge or you sign up for something and you feel that mix of like 50% terrified, 50% excited, that is the right level of challenge because that's the challenge that you'll get the most out of. If you're always going into things where you feel confident and you know that you can do them, then that's great fun and that's awesome and there's a place for that. But if you really want to push yourself, you've got to feel a little bit terrified as well because that's when the magic stuff happens. Um, so it just came from, okay, I want to do a run because I love running. And I just thought, how can I make this run harder? Because I've already done a 2000 mile run in trainers. And this stupid little voice in my head just, just said, why don't you do it with no shoes on, Anna? And I just thought, Who, who's that voice? And um, then it wouldn't leave me alone. And then originally I was going to try and run the distance of 50 marathons in bare feet. And then I had coffee with my boyfriend, who's also a crazy adventurer and runs across countries. And he just took a sip of his coffee and then went quiet and said, oh, 100 marathons sounds better though, doesn't it, Anna? And that was it. I thought, right, that's it. I've got to try and do this 100 marathon distance now because it's been set. Um, yeah, but, it, it, but that's the thing about challenge. It's all relative. That's, that was me trying to go to that point where I'm 50% terrified, 50% excited. But for some people, that's going to be a 5K. That's going to be a 10K. It's, I've got no idea what the people listening are capable of. That's, that's up to you. 
So how do you deal with that 50% that's terrified? Because myself, Rach, and a lot of our listeners will sign up to a marathon, for example, and they'll be terrified on the start line or terrified in the weeks leading up to it. So how do you actually deal with that? What do you say to yourself? I think, I mean, that is the thing. You just deal with it, don't you? You have to sit with your fear and I think that's the most difficult point. You almost, when you've signed up and then you're, you've got all this anxiety and you've got sleepless nights and you're putting pressure on yourself when you're going out and doing training sessions, um, you almost just want to be on the start line by that point because it's uncomfortable. It's like tossing and turning in your sleep when, you, when you've got that sort of that nervous buzz and it just doesn't leave you in the pit of your stomach. But I think that's all you can do is just sit with it and acknowledge it and say, okay, cool, there you are. That's actually a good thing. You know, if you've got fear sat next to you, that means you're about to go and do something pretty special. So you can just acknowledge it, but but just, yeah, just just hang out with your fear. Just fist bump it. <laughs> I'll fist bump it next time, I promise. <laughs> but um, what about the fear of failure then? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because um, we, we all have that. We all have that. And there is, and I think I've dispensed with it more and more over the years because I've learned that, I mean, 90% of the time, things do not go to plan. Life is this swirling mess of chaos that you can't control. And that's the beauty in it. So I think the more times you do things and you go into them and you think, if I fail, then what? You know, what What actually is going to happen? Well, people will laugh at me. But actually, the people that are laughing at me, do I care about them? Are they, are they important, really? And if they're laughing at me, do I care about their opinion? Because I'd never laugh at someone if they tried something. So I think we we kind of have this perception of the way people are going to perceive us when they fail, when we'd never look at someone else like that. And And actually, the reality is we're all so absorbed in our own mission and our own goals and everyone is I don't mean that in a selfish way but everyone cares about their own goals more than anything else that we're not taking notice of other people um so you might as well just crack on because when you get to 80 and you're old and smell a wee then you know you you want to look back and and actually just think do you know what I just gave it a crack and I made mistakes but I learned and 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 that's the most important thing so um Yeah, I definitely still have a fear of failure, especially with the Barefoot Britain run, because it was so public and there were so many moving parts to it with girl guiding and with um, lots of open stages for people to come run with me that I definitely felt the pressure. But I had to, in the back of my mind, think if this all goes wrong, I've tried. I mean, going back to the Barefoot run, which you just kind of went back to it there. As a runner, I'm someone that loves actually walking around in Barefoot. But if I have been at a beach all day and then I want to go and run, I also run with orthotics in my trainers. Don't know why I have done for like 15 odd years. My calves will hurt. I'm one of these people that if I don't support my feet a lot, my calves hurt when I go and run. Surely when you started your training, if you did training for the, the run, your legs were just shot to pieces. Yeah, you're 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 so right. And with this with this adventure, I'm 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 a bit slapdash in my preparation sometimes because I do long adventures. I think oh, I'll just work it out. But along the way, but with this one, I actually thought Anna, this is serious. You you can't start this run unprepared. It's just not going to fly. And so I actually spent. Um, I'd been in minimalist shoes uh, just because I found that they suited me and I really enjoyed wearing them. I like the feel of them. I'd been in them actually for about three years anyway just walking around everyday life, running in them. And then it took me a year and a half from making the decision to definitely go ahead and do the run to transition down to being completely barefoot from running in minimalist shoes. So 
that that was a long time and and I would do that I'd do six months of running in my minimalist trainers trying to build some mileage up no more than 15 miles though in a, in a day though and then um I would then um spend six months in these things called Skinner's socks which are like they're a bit like wetsuit socks and then I spent six months barefoot and there was a period of transition at each stage so I might go out and run eight miles with my Skinner's socks on and then I'd take my the socks off for the last two miles and then do two miles barefoot and then gradually shift that balance so yeah it took a year and a half and for the first six months my calves were in agony and my Achilles were they were and I thought oh no I just thought am I gonna I was having nightmares about snapping my Achilles because wow. <laughs> you you hear of that don't you you hear of it and then you start thinking, but actually, once I realized that it was just like the foundations of a house, it was just that my body was now settling into this new position and it was just having a bit of a moan, but it's because my calves were having to work harder and my Achilles was lengthening, um, that gradually it started to go away. And um, by the time I started the run, my Achilles weren't hurting anymore and my calves were much stronger. Um, yeah, so it was, it was so gradual and I had to be really patient, but eventually my body worked it out. Are you back in trainers or are you forever more barefoot? Oh, I am back in trainers. Honestly, I think the barefoot movement around the world are just disgusted with me because <laughs> I got all these emails <laughs> that will say things like, yes, what you're doing is fantastic for the movement, the Church of Barefoot, Anna. And I was thinking, I was like, oh, no, I'm not really a barefoot evangelist. I'm just like, I'm just doing this to see if it's possible. I'm really sorry. I'm going to put my shoes back on. Um so I'm definitely back in shoes, but I am a minimalist convert because in those 2,300 miles, I only had one day off for a sore calf for a muscular injury. Um, and I think that's a testament really for that style of running. And for me, minimalist running works. So why do you think that that style of running works? Because it's interesting that you say that because recently I was reading a book running with the Kenyans and they were talking about running barefoot and that it's actually better for the way that your foot strikes the floor and that actually it can increase efficiency for your running. So is that something that you found or did you just find it more enjoyable? I think the main thing is I find it more enjoyable. It's that, you know, and it links to my reason of why I run. I feel free and I feel like a kid. And so if you've got no shoes on, you feel more like a kid. Um, but I, I definitely can't comment on whether, you know, barefoot running is the way forward for, you know, speed and all of that. Um, but I know that my running style is slow, long distance. And I do think for slow, long distance, the minimalist running style tends to be, um, and I was, I was coached by this guy from the running lab um, called, called Christian. I was going to say he lives under Kew Bridge, but that makes him sound like a troll, but he doesn't live under Kew Bridge, but that's where he is. So I'd go and visit him and he looked at my running gait and basically trained me to run with very, very level shoulders, like a, like a ultra running shuffler, as opposed to a Mo Farah, like bouncing, you know, or a Kipchoge kind of like bouncing down the road. I'm, I'm naturally, I don't run like that anyway. And no matter how many times I watch them on the telly, I'm never going to run like that. <laughs> I think you two probably run like that, um, which is wonderful. I don't think so. <laughs> oh yeah, I've seen pictures. You're like gazelles. That's the Instagram. Um, we know Instagram's not <laughs> real. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You've got that perfect angle. Um, so I think for my, for my style of running and for distance, what, minim, what minimalist running does is it is a more natural style of running. And your, I mean, it just relies on your body to be your shock absorber. absorber and that means everything starts working as it should um, rather than relying on external things that, that might move your body in a different way. So, 
for me, it's great. And also the second I started wearing minimalist shoes, like all my muscles like tightened up. It was, it, you know, stuff going to the gym, just put some minimalist shoes on and all your core has to start working. It's great. Where's your next adventure then? Have you got another running one planned or have you got a different kind of sport one? Oh, do you, do you know what? I'm so gutted, Rachel, because in this like, coronavirus, so right now, right this very second, I was supposed to be running what is called um there's a there's a pathway through britain called the monarch way um which is a long distance pathway and it retraces i mean i'm not a history geek but i learned this uh it retraces the route that king charles ii took after he escaped the civil war or something but i was going to run it with my friend who's a history teacher and we were going to dress up as the queen and have stuffed corgis and run the monarch way um and we we're going to run a section of it um because i love running in fancy dress and just doing something fun um, but then the coronavirus happened. So that was going to be my next mini adventure because I do like doing mini adventures as well as big ones. But yeah, it went out the window. So my pearl necklace and my stuffed corgi is going to have to wait. I love that course. Only you would go and do something crazy like that. Because yeah, <laughs> I remember again, you telling me about all your fancy dress ones. And if you go on Anna's Instagram, it's just full of colour. Basically, I'm going to say I'll wait for you to go and uh, <laughs> check that out afterwards. <laughs> A bit like us today. We're so colourful today. People can't see this, but it's colour vision. I'm going to take a picture of it for sure. And actually, I guess one question that I think yeah. our listeners might like as well. Obviously, we spoke about you leaving your marketing job and your PR job. And this, I guess, now is your full-time job. How yeah. difficult is it to make being a running adventurer a full-time job? It is hustle. I'm not going to lie. It has been hustle. And it has been sick. It probably took me six years to make it my full time job. So I've only now had it as a full time job for two to three years. And I did it very, very gradually. So I left my full time employed marketing position. I then went freelance. So I would do six month contracts and then go and adventure for six months. And basically in that time, I was I was creating, you know, creating my stories, creating the assets, doing the thing I wanted to do without yet trying to earn a living from it. And then gradually what would happen is every time I'd come back from an adventure, I'd drop my freelance work down. So I would go three days a week and then write a book two days a week. And over those six years, it was kind of like a giant way scale. The, the income I was being able to make from writing books and giving talks about adventure just naturally started to come up. And that meant that I could drop my freelance work down until eventually I was down to sort of one day a week and I let go of my marketing work and floated. Um, and, um, and then from there, it's just continued to build. But you do, I mean, it did, it took me six years. It took me six years. And there was a point in that when I came back from one journey, cycling in South America, and I came back, I was flat broke. Nothing seemed to be working. I was thinking, I'm going to have to go back and get a job I really don't want to get. And it must have, and then finally things just started to click into place. So I definitely went through a lot of times where I questioned what I was doing. Um, and now I'm so glad that I managed to, to keep going because, yeah, I, lo I love what I do. It is hard work every single day. And sometimes months go by and I think, when did I take a day off? <laughs> but, um, but I love it. I think you can really tell how much you love what you do. Um, I've been watching a few of your talks on YouTube, following you on Instagram, and your positivity and your love for adventure really shines through. So personally I really appreciate it because it brightens up our days uh -huh. but more recently you have a new book coming out can you tell us about this book 
Yeah, so this, I'm so chuffed with it. This is a kid's book um, and it's aimed at kids aged 8 to 11. But basically, it's a book for adults because it's called 100 Adventures to Have Before You Grow Up. And that means if you don't want to grow up, then you can do all these adventures. Um, and it just came out of how can I pass something on to the younger generation? And they have such a natural sense of awe and wonder, kids. And I just thought, if I can try and help stoke that little adventure fire, um, and get in there early and give them ideas and also show them what's possible. So throughout the book, there's also examples of grown-ups that have done really cool adventure stuff. And I thought if they can just see that anything's possible, no matter what gender they are, then that's, that's a really cool thing. So yeah, and it's beautifully illustrated as well. The illustrator is seriously talented. Can you read something from it, please? Or like tell us about maybe an adventure that we should have? Yeah, yeah. Well, what I'll do is, um, so uh, actually, there's a little, at the start of the book, there's a little picture of me and my pink curly hair. And um, there's a little intro paragraph. So I'll just read you that. And then I'm going to read you one of the running adventures, if that's all right. Just because, you know, obviously, you need to have these running adventures. Okay, cool. So this is the, this is part of the intro. It says, big or small, near or far, one thing is for certain. An adventure won't just drop into your lap one day while you're sitting inside in your pajamas. You must seek out adventure. You have to be brave and dare to go out into the unknown like the intrepid explorers of the past and the bold adventurers of today. You must be prepared to try new things, to take a few deep breaths and to scare yourself silly. You must fly by the seat of your adventure pants because the feeling you get from pushing yourself to a new limit is like nothing else. Yay. So that's the, um, that's the little intro there. Yay! I love <laughs> it. Everyone needs adventure pants. And then I flick to, um, this is adventure number 28 out of 100. And the title is Go on a Multi-Day Running Journey. And it says, running is a simple way to travel. All you need is a pair of trainers, some puff in your lungs, and a willingness to explore. You can get off the beaten track, down long-forgotten forest pathways, across windswept hilltops, and through wildflower meadows. All the places in the world that cars and bikes can't go. Your feet will be pounding on the ground, but your head will be in the clouds and the adrenaline will be pumping through your veins. You will feel invincible, capital letters. <laughs> and then there's a little, um, a little box out there with an adventure example of Rosie Swell Pope, who is this amazing woman who ran 20,000 miles around the world and she pulled everything behind her in a small cabin on wheels. That's it. Wow. No words for that, lady. <laughs> Anna, that sounds amazing, genuinely. 100 adventures to have before you grow up. Um, definitely. If you want to go and put a smile on your face, go and read that. Because I've read one of Anna's books and it does that for sure. I'm not going to lie. You've done all these crazy adventure adventures. Is there any normal running race that you'd ever like to go and take part in? Like a normal marathon or a half marathon or a 10K? Right. I've got a couple, actually. Um, uh, and I think one of them is pretty normal. Uh, one of them is I'd like to do, um, well, man v horse or is it man versus train? Either one of those two, which just sound like an absolute rocking load of fun. Um, and then, and then the slightly more abnormal one is I'd love to do the Comrades Ultra, which is in South Africa, because that just sounds nails. And I love the tradition from that race and the camaraderie. Um, and that just sounds amazing. So those are my two, um, uh, yeah, I'm not. I did love the London Marathon, though. That was my first ever official marathon. I did that last year, and I loved it. The atmosphere was incredible. So, Rach and I, I don't know if you know, we're actually due last month to go on what would be my first adventure, but 
Rachel's done a couple. Um, we were due to run the Speed Project, which is an unsanctioned relay. It was a team of six girls, and we were running from Santa Monica Pier to the Las Vegas sign. We were super excited to it for it, but I've never undertaken anything like that. So for going on my first adventure or any of our listeners who are going on their first adventure, what is the one piece of advice you would give us? I would say, and it's actually a quote from a friend of mine who um, who does mad things. And he says, whenever you get to a point in a journey or a race or a run where your body is going beyond where it's gone before, he said, you've just got to stop at that moment and go, wow, my body is about to do something it's literally never done before. How exciting is that? And you've got no idea what's going to happen. You know, will your hair suddenly turn blue? Will your legs fall off? Or will you absolutely fly like a beast and suddenly find this second wind? And I just think embracing that sense of unknown and just thinking, how exciting is that? You're about to do something new. And that sounds like an amazing thing, a speed project. I'd seen it tagged, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm so jealous. Oh, I can't wait to follow that. Anna, thank you so much for your time and for joining us. I really, really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me and hope you stay sane in the lockdown. And you, and you. Go and do some more adventures and we'll follow them on Instagram. Just for everyone at home, what is your Instagram so they can go and follow you, please? I am at Anna McNuff. McNuff is M-C-N-U-F-F. I'm the only Anna McNuff in the world. Very easy to find and follow me on there. I'd love to have you. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you. Bye. So Anna was super inspiring and super motivational. I absolutely loved her positive outlook on life and her energy is so infectious. I guess the thing that I took most from Anna's conversation with us was the fear of failure. And actually, sometimes I think, what am I actually scared of? So when I line up on the start of a park run where I'm attempting to do a PB or at the start of a world major marathon, I'm always scared that I'm going to fail. But really, after talking to Anna, I think I'll stand on the start line now more confident with the fear of failure in the back of my mind. Because I guess what is the worst that can happen? I don't finish the race. I don't run the PB that I want. That's not really failure, I guess. I guess there's way bigger problems in the world and way bigger things to worry about, to worry about that fear of failure in my run. Um, and I also noticed, Rach, that I think something we both took from the podcast was um, we nodded at each other as Anna was talking about breaking the race down. And during her New Zealand run, she broke it down into 10Ks. I think it was super interesting. And I think it's definitely something that I know we both do. Yeah, for sure. I guess I don't break it down like into 10Ks like Anna did, but during a marathon and a half marathon, really, anything that I think is a little bit long, I like to try and count and use counting as a way just to get through maybe the next mile. So especially kind of from counting to zero to 100, I try and count really slow and kind of methodically um, to get through the next mile. And I kind of find it helps. If I've counted from zero to 100, I've almost ran another mile. I'm like, okay, mile down. Next one, let's go. And I also, I guess, repeat little motivational sayings, if you can call them that. And my favorite one, 
I kind of took from Finding Nemo, actually, the film, which they said, just keep swimming, swimming when they're off to find Nemo. <laughs> Obviously, Dory and Marlin, they say that. Um, and so I change it around to just keep running. So I'm just like, just keep running, running. I'm doing actions right now. You can't see on the podcast, but that's what I say in the mind um, to try and keep myself going. I mean, sounds silly, but I bet you have some too, Amana. I mean, I don't have the Finding Nemo one, but maybe I should try that. My one is when I've got three miles left of a race or 5K, basically. So whether that's at mile 23 in a marathon or mile 10 and a half marathon, I tell myself that I only have a park run left. And I picture myself doing park run and thinking how short park run is. And that's all I've got left. So that's what I tell myself. Yeah, I think it really works. I remember as well when I was a junior, um, and training, you know, really difficult sessions on a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And I had a goal at the end of the season, maybe to try and get to English schools or a GB juniors or some competition. I used to repeat whatever it was. So if it was like win English schools, literally, I remember running around the session, if it was a 10 minute tempo to start with going, I'm going to win English schools, I'm going to win English schools. And that's what I used to repeat in my head over and over again. So I don't know why I did that, but it helped for me. But um, something else I took from Anna as well was that she just said that she'd stopped caring what people think of her, which I think in this day and age is, is quite something because everyone's on Instagram, Anna especially, you know, she's showing everyone what she does and she's doing some rather unique challenges, let's just say. Um, I'm sure people have opinion about her running barefoot across the UK, but she said she just doesn't care anymore. And I guess, Amana, I'll ask you that question more so because, you know, you call yourself a running influencer. How you got to that point of not caring what people think of you when you're standing taking a picture somewhere? Because uh, everyone's seen this going on, maybe in a, in a park, people taking pictures for Instagram. How do you deal with either people staring at you or what people have potentially said to you on Instagram? I guess I just don't care. I mean, I walk down the street or sometimes even run down the street with my phone in front of me talking at my phone, which obviously looks so weird to everyone, but I do not even notice the people around me, honestly. And in terms of taking photos for Instagram, I'll stand in London Bridge on a Saturday, which is super busy, and I'll take the photos that I'm taking with a photographer. And generally, I just don't care what the people around me think. And I just think I'm doing what I need to do, and I'm doing my thing. If they want to judge, that's fine. If they want to follow, that's also fine. <laughs> um, I just think you just have to not care what people think. We're all out doing our own thing, and it varies from person to person. And if they want to judge me, well, I'll probably never see them again anyway. So, yeah, I just don't care. And if you want to see Amana's pictures on London Bridge, uh, you better go and follow her. Amana, what's your handle? Um, I'm at Amana underscore Rye. And what's yours, Rach? Okay, mine is at Rachel double underscore Stringer. Double underscore is so annoying, I know, but that's what it is. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening. And thanks so much, Anna, for joining us. She was amazing. But that is all we have time for this week. And until next week, keep running. Oh,